Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week, going to guide you gently through another show. And we have a terrific guest this week. Hannah Vazana is SVP of Corporate Strategy and Communications at Hilton Grand Vacations. And Hannah's calling in from the office, but uh, she's still partly working from home down in Orlando. So welcome to the show, Hannah. How are you doing? I'm well, Steve. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. And we'll talk to you about uh, what I'm I'm sure has been a tumultuous year, uh, particularly for you, but for everyone else. But um, it'd be great to get your perspective on 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 the the world in the last 12 months at Hilton in the travel and tourism industry and what you see coming coming forward and hopefully coming through this. So uh, looking forward to chatting. Also joined by Frank Washcook, who's our executive editor. How are you doing, Frank? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yes, good uh, Good to talk to you as always. When we've uh, chatted to Hannah, we'll talk about the big news stories of the week. Cinnamon Toast Crunch, the shrimp crisis. What's that all about? We'll find out. We'll, we'll talk about S4 Group's earnings. That's Martin Sorrell's new uh, uh, company, which seems to be doing rather well. We'll talk about this H&M boycott in China. Uh, we'll get into Jason Miller and Taneo. We'll talk about Krispy Kreme's COVID vaccine campaign. And we'll also talk about hashtag Stop Asian Hate um, following the horrific murders um, last week and uh, brand responses to that. But first of all, Hannah, let's get into talking to you. Um, you've been at Hilton about 13 years, I think, and um, you've been in the tourism in- travel and tourism industry longer than that. But you've, you had an interesting re- route into communications. Tell us a bit about that. Sure, actually started my career in retail um, and then went to business school um, and have been much more of a, I'd say, generalist. I've been a Six Sigma black belt. I did project management, development, and kind of came into communications naturally. And it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. So I'm really happy that that happened. When I came over to Hilton Grand Vacations, I started in kind of a hybrid role where I was still doing project management and, and general strategy work for the company. Um, but also doing um, executive communications. And that's where I really got my entree. And then eventually over time, when we went public, when we split from Hilton in 2017, um, I started up our new corporate communications function. Yeah, so that we'll talk about that and uh, the split in the business and which bit Grand Vacations. But tell us a bit about coming. Uh, it's often said that PR people in, you know, traditionally have lacked a, a business background and that all PR pros should get a, a grounding in business and maybe get an MBA. So having already done that yourself, what, what would your recommendations be to PR pros and how, how best does that inform your work as a communicator? I think it, I know I find when I work with my team, some of whom have that background and some of whom don't, they really appreciate being able to be brought into the business side of it. It helps them to be better you know in their as communications professionals so we spend a lot of time actually on business strategy and since I still had that department for the company I'm able to really ground them in what our business objectives are and I think that helps them to be best better business partners when they go out and work with the various teams so I I encourage it I also think you know as a field I think I found that people have been very open to it so I'm certainly open to hiring people who 
have a, have a different background, but I really rely on the expertise of um, my team who have the pure communications PR background as well. We need that expertise. So a balance, I would say. Yeah, that sounds uh, sensible. But I, I guess when you're uh, talking to the C-suite and you're at the top table, it's great to have that uh, business background as well. So you can talk on the on the same level about the big business issues. And do you, do you find comms now is being included in, in those discussions rather than being brought in at the end? I would say that is a huge advantage that we have here since I sit on our executive committee. Um, I report directly into our president and CEO. I really always have. So having that direct connect uh, definitely makes a difference, but it's still about building relationships with the rest of the C-suite and our, our senior executives. And my team does a great job at that. And that continues to be obviously a skill set that everyone needs to have because without that trust, um, you're not going to be at the table. Yeah, for sure. So tell us a bit more about that uh, split and going public in 2017 and, and what the Hilton Grand Vacations arm uh, encompasses. Sure. Uh, yeah, so we were part of, of Hilton prior to to that, and so we were functionally aligned. So our corporate communications function really, while we had some folks uh, who did our timeshare owner communications in Orlando, we were, um, our legal, HR, IT communications, et cetera, really were functionally supported out of Hilton. So we had, we had to build our team from scratch, pretty much, and, um, you know, that was, a great exercise to do. And we were able to bring in almost an entirely new team and um, really focus in on our business and really focus in on some areas that we hadn't been able to to do before, especially around, you know, doing our own media relations and really kind of being the headline. Um, and um, we're still um, have a, a long-term relationship with Hilton, a really great relationship, um, this long-term licensing agreement. So we are one of their brands on their brand bar which is a wonderful thing to have. And we work really well together, but we're also able to, you know, issue our own press releases and, and really tell our own story, which has been exciting. Yeah. That's a luxury. A lot of people probably don't get in their career, actually having the chance to build a, a great team for a big brand from scratch like that. Um, and uh, you made a big acquisition a few weeks ago, um, Diamond Resorts. Tell us uh, how you communicate around that, especially in a, a, what is presumably still a bit of a lockdown period. Yeah, sure. Um, and we've, um, we've made the announcement. Obviously, we still have kind of standard uh, approvals to get to, through the closing process. So we're very much aware of that. But it, it was a, you know, a massive undertaking from a communications perspective. Um, when you think about um, taking, you know, more, almost doubling the size of our, what will be our owners and doubling the number of resorts we'll have, it's, you know, a massive undertaking. And so, so a lot of pre-planning, we had limited resources we were able to bring into that process, so to speak. As you can imagine, not everyone gets to be to be a part of it. And so meeting the needs of all of the departments, um, preparing um, to make an announcement kind of when the timing was, was going to be required a lot of coordination across all areas. And thankfully, we had those relationships. So being able to turn that all within a number of hours and, and you know, work with our counterparts across the aisle, so to speak, um, was, um, you know, taking a company public and then and working on a, a acquisition like this are two things that just have been probably highlights of, of my, my career. Yeah, for sure. Now, tell us about the last 12 months. It's been uh, obviously an unprecedented period, but for the travel and 
tourism industries, it's been horrific. And the, um, your numbers reflect that as they do across the whole sector. Just tell us how you've coped with that as a business, uh, as a communications team. How has leadership sort of communicated during that time? And, and what, is, what has it been like over the last uh, 12 months? Yeah, sure. We actually had, I think, the dubious distinction of having one of the first COVID cases at a American resort, um, really prior to lockdown. So Valentine's Day weekend of 2020, we were alerted that we had a case um, at one of our resorts in Hawaii, um, a traveler from Asia. And so we kind of got an early taste of what it was going to be like. And I knew then kind of what was coming. Um, it was also sort of a blessing in disguise in that we had to go through this really steep learning curve in a matter of a few days of how we were going to handle this, um, how we were going to interact. We immediately, obviously, initiated our issues and, and crisis response plan across the company. And um, we were able to handle that and make decisions around, you know, how, how we didn't even have guidance. You know, how do you how do you clean the rooms? Who do you issue? So we really felt that. I think on kind of our values around transparency and the safety and well-being of our guests and team members. So every decision we made, every communications and operational decision were grounded in, in those um, tenets. And I'd say that's how we've continued to respond throughout. So we were very quick to, to shut down our offices and, and essentially effectively shut down all of our operations. Um, so we had to learn as a company how to you know, reopen um, and communicate. Um, a few of the things that we did during that time, we, we unfortunately had to furlough some team members during that time. Um, so we had to figure out how, how and what we could communicate to them. We had to set up a, you know, a special furlough website. Um, so, and we also have to reach our owners. So it's kind of unique. They're not transactional. They, they actually buy a product that they own in perpetuity, a deeded piece of real estate. So they're very invested in that. So regular communications with our owners, with our team members, and obviously with our guests as things were changing so rapidly became, um, it was a challenge to, to, to meet that, but we, we did it through lots of different, different vehicles and um, whether that was, you know, we just, you know, meeting the customer where they are, meeting the team member where they are was our, our philosophy. Yeah. yeah. And how did you, your senior execs communicate employee engagement was presumably crucial as it was with all stakeholders during that period. What sort of things did you do to, you know, you had to pivot if you like in lockdown and, and do more remote stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was like everyone, it was sort of a, we, we learned um, how good we, we were at technology or how not good we were at technology, but we leveraged lots of new, you know, everybody does Zoom and does Teams meetings and all of that now, but at first it was about learning how to do all of that. We really had to switch a lot. We were not a remote workforce. Um, we're not, you know, a tech company. We're a face-to-face -face hospitality company, so we really had to do things like even keeping our our call center that handles, you know, reservations and customer care and take the, those folks in and, and move them to work from home. So there was a lot that we had to do around communicating how that works and, and how you even, you know, clock your time. And, and so a lot of very sort of nitty gritty type communications, but from an executive perspective, it was about, um, 
I think really once we had a handle on what was going to happen with the business and where we were, um, which was, you know, we were very quick to be able to assess that and make some critical decisions to make sure that the business was in a good place for the long run. It was about, you know, reassuring um, our team members and our owners about the health of the business and where we were going to go over the long term. Um, and we were fortunate to be in a good position to be able to do that. What was the toughest part of the year? And what was the time when you thought, wow, that, that the team really stepped up here and did some great work? Um, I would say for us, definitely the toughest was when we had to, um, you know, furlough team members when we were closing down resorts. And my team worked really closely with HR around how we were going to communicate those difficult messages. And they really, you know, stepped up and, and they partner so well um, with our HR team and know our team members and care about them so much. But I think that helped to make the way we did the messaging um, as kind as it can be in that situation. And also constantly, I referred to that for a low website, but really being able to stay in compliance, but in contact with team members that are furloughed. So they, they stay close to the company was really important to us. So there was, I think, some innovative thinking around that and always having that top of mind. Yeah, that's uh, definitely been a tough time for sure. Tell us about, it feels like everyone's bursting now to get out again, aren't they? And I think people have, they haven't had, a lot of people haven't been on holiday for over a year or even longer. You feel like people are starting to fly again. I mean, with all the caveats that there's still massive problems out there and massive uh, infection rates, but, you know, we do have vaccines. Tell us a little bit about what you're feeling now, what you're, what what your uh, perspective is on on you know people being able to travel go go on holiday again take trips and what you're seeing in the business and how you're communicating around that sure absolutely i mean obviously the the, the health and safety of both our team members and our guests is continues to be of utmost importance and we have and we're among the first to put out very rigorous um safety guidelines in partnership with hilton um our enhanced guidelines and we've gotten great feedback from our guests and owners they feel really safe when they've traveled I'm I'm thrilled to see what's happening um, I think we all are to um, see us especially across the United States um, which is where most of our the majority of our owners are in the United States and our resorts um, to see you know vaccine numbers rising and with that I think people just feel more optimistic about travel and that they'll be able to travel. I think if you look at any of the surveys that, out, that are out there around uh, the pandemic and what people miss the most, um, I think sometimes even before family, people say they miss travel. I think those two are combined together very often, but really there's a huge pent up demand for leisure travel. And, you know, we know that we're well positioned to take advantage of that and to, of course, take care of our, our timeshare owners who may not have been able to travel last year um, and who will hopefully travel even more with us when the time is right for them. We've definitely seen that there's a spectrum, right? There are people who traveled through the pandemic and felt fine with that. Maybe they got hopped in their car and they drove to the beach. Yeah. Um, or now they feel safe to travel to Hawaii, as an example, who's done a great, you know, the state has done a great job of putting in place really rigorous um, testing measures. So it's really a matter of kind of the guest comfort with travel. But we're seeing that people are more and more optimistic, which is great to see. So I guess the uh, the spring breakers down in Florida is probably not the way to go. Yeah, it's, uh, that's been a bit, of a, <laughs> a bit chaotic, hasn't it, over the last couple of weeks? 
I, I think it's, it's always a little chaotic. Um, well, that's true, yeah. And I think people I think people get really worried. But I mean, here in Orlando, which is more of a sort of family-friendly spring break destination, I think places, you know, like the theme parks here continue to do an outstanding job of, of putting in, in place really rigorous safety protocols. Um, and so people have felt that they can, they can get out more, um, and, and along with the higher vaccine rates, which we're definitely hearing about. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I saw uh, Richard Edelman, obviously the CEO of Edelman PR, uh, posting on social media from a plane. It was his first air- airplane ride for a year, and that, he was a person who flew around all the time. I think he he missed it terribly. He looked really happy to be back on a plane. So there you go. Um, it's great <laughs> to chat to you, Hannah. So um, yeah, and we'll get your input on some of the stories. But great to hear what's going on, and hopefully looking forward to a better year ahead for sure. Yes, thank you. Um, Frank, let's get into the news stories. What's, what's this cinnamon toast crunch thing and uh, shrimps? It's it's a bit of an odd one. Yeah, you um, you could in fact call it a crustacean crisis. There you go. I like it. A that. crunchy crustacean crisis. Uh, a little bit too crunchy, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, I, the gist of the story is that um, a comedian, uh, who of course has a social media account or a few. Um, Essentially, they found what looked like a shrimp and other um, non-cinnamon toast crunch objects within uh, his cereal, and and he posted it on social media. And you know, a lot of brands are sort of piling on this and, and making fun of it, but uh, it's become a, a, a pretty serious brand crisis for cinnamon toast crunch and for its parent company, General Mills. Uh, I had I had CNBC on yesterday while I was working, and the the CEO of uh, of the parent company was was being interviewed, and and he was asked about it twice, and both he and the host seemed to be almost um, shocked at just just how much attention this was this was getting in the media, and I, I, I do think it just goes to show anybody with a bit of influence post something like this can be become a crisis in a hurry. Um, here is their side of it. They are saying they are investigating it. They're trying to work with the individual who posted it in the first place uh, to get uh, him to send it back and, and all of these things. But um, they say they can say with confidence that this did not occur uh, within a General Mills uh, facility, and they are waiting for him to send the package back so they can get to the bottom of it. So it, it remains a mystery, but um, it has become a bit of a, I guess, a brand safety small crisis for General Mills and for Cinnamon Toast Crunch. It's a, that's the nightmare for any food company, isn't it, when you've got something like that happening. Hannah, you, you're in a customer service business, customer facing. Social media is a brilliant tool for communicating and, and, and marketing, but it can also be uh, you need to have crisis plans in place, don't you, for eventualities like this? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it shows you how how quickly uh, things can escalate. Um, I, I did read through that, um, some of the, the Twitter feed on that, and it's clear it could have probably ended a little bit sooner. Um, but it just shows you that the, the response that you take initially uh, can really can really get out of control quickly. 
You can, and every communications team needs to be on top of that. Every brand does as well. So that's uh, that's why we write about it so much on PR Week, because I think it's such a big part of uh, communications and marketing these days. Frank, Sir Martin Sorrell, uh, an old favourite of the show, and he's at his new company, S4, former WPP chief executive. They had their earnings uh, announcement, uh, I think, today, wasn't it? And they did, they're doing rather well, aren't they? And they made another yeah. acquisition. They are. They're off to a good start. And it's Sir Martin we should have on the show sometime. So I hope he considers this an open invitation. Yeah. Um, it's They are doing really well. Of course, it's a somewhat uh, new company. Uh, I believe it's the second year uh, that they've been a publicly traded company uh, since he launched it after he left WPP. Um, but S4 has posted almost 20% growth uh, in organic revenue to uh, just over uh, 400 million. So obviously a much smaller company than WPP, but really posting some impressive numbers to start. Um, but that's not the big news from this morning's announcement. It has entered into a conditional agreement to combine Media Monks, which is one of his core uh, sort of digital production and creative chops, uh, with a firm called Jam3. S4 always has these great names on agencies, don't they? I mean, there's always yeah. real, really wild names. S4 is a bit of a boring holding company name, but then so was WPP, wasn't it? It stood for Wire true. and Plastic Products. So, yeah. It's true. It's true. Um, so Jam3 is a design and experience agency based up in Toronto. It has offices in Uruguay, Amsterdam, uh, and L.A. Of course, Media Monks is also headquartered in Amsterdam. Um, last year, S4 also bought up Decoded Advertising and Metric Theory, which is an integrated performance agency. And uh, early this year, Mighty Hive bought up the assets of, uh, here's another great name, Datalicious Australia, which is there an analytics company. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so bottom line, S4 off to a terrific start, good growth in its second year as a public company. Yeah, I heard Martin on Clubhouse. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was his first uh, foray onto Clubhouse, and he was on for about 90 minutes on a Friday evening, and he was really enjoying himself, having little jabs at not only his former employer, WPP, of which he still holds a stake, by the way. He does, yeah. Um, but also all the other holding companies as well. And he was, you know, he's he's the master of that little little barbs and, um, you know, having fun with it. And, you know, he's clearly enjoying himself at his advanced age. You know, as an, another person who used to fly around the world all the time. And he was asked about that. And he said he, maybe he, he'd enjoyed it a bit. He's, he's spending a lot of time with his dog. Our sister title campaign put him on the cover with his big uh, red setter, I think it is, big dog. Um, so, yeah, he's having a great time. Hannah, in terms of agency partners, how do you approach that at Hilton Grand Vac- Vacations? Presumably, you know, when you set up your team from scratch, you you also had to set up your agency partnerships from scratch as well. Yes, we've had a relationship um, for a while, um, actually, with, with Hilton, and we um, ended up continuing that relationship um, with Edelman, and they continue to be our partners now. And, um, you know, we, we can't do it without that support we we run pretty lean um and we really do rely on them for their expertise and have been a great partner over the years yeah where do you see it with s4 is kind of a new type of holding company very much based on data and tech and analytics and um almost in housing stuff as well um how do you have you got a perspective on them versus the more mainstream holding companies um i mean i think that you know 
it depends a little bit on how much you're kind of growing your in-house digital expertise, and that will vary from company to company. So I've definitely seen various approaches in our industry, um, but I think there's definitely a place for that. And um, a lot of times it's a lot easier to plug into that expertise. So. Yeah, for sure. All right, Frank, another story that's um, breaking up really big time in Asia um, is H&M boycott in China and the other brands are getting um, wound into this as well. Tell us all about it. Yeah, this is um, this is an issue that's not going to go away as more Western companies um, who are used to kind of, you know, boisterous and activist audiences and employees and executives. Um, you know, start to to really get a foothold in China. And this actually, what is happening with H&M right now, the clothing retailer, is the result of a statement that came out eight months ago uh, in which H&M addressed accusations of forced labor uh, and the discrimination of ethnic minorities uh, in the Uyghur Autonomous Region. And so um, essentially, they they just decried that forced labor, they said prohibit any type of it in the supply chain. Uh, and if they discover and verify a case of forced labor at a supplier they work with, they take immediate action and terminate a business relationship with the supplier. This did not go over well, uh, even this insinuation that, um, that this is taking place in China did not go over well with a lot of Chinese social media users. Uh, who have called for a boycott and, um, you know, and this boycott has been spreading in the country. And it's prompted the question of our companies that also have part of their supply chain in the country, whether that's Nike or Uniqlo, are they going to face the same uh, sort of issue? Uh, and I think it's already starting to bubble up in some cases. And And it is... I think it just goes to show just just how an incredibly different market China is from the West. And in a lot of cases, even these very, very subtle criticisms of the country and its political system um, and, you know, it, it, its treatment of, of Muslim ethnic minority people within the country uh, have a lot of business consequences. And so, you know, companies that are operating over there, they, they have to be prepared for this. Uh, yeah, I think we've all seen it in, in sports in the past couple of years, too, where there, there was the executive from the Houston Rockets made comments about China and, and you know, they were immediately pulled from TV in that country. And then there's the case with um, Metzenozel as well. Uh, and there were Premier League games pulled off of Chinese TV. So um, I, I think, Companies just need to be prepared for this sort of conflict if they're going to have business relationships in the country. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean uh, it's very, it's it's where real reputation counsel and 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 again social media uh, strategy comes into play. Um, Hannah, you you're in many global markets at Hilton, and and how do you sort of approach that market to market in terms of being sensitive to uh, the local culture and customs? Yeah, obviously it's. Um... It's incredibly important. I mean, in the hospitality industry, you know, our, our goal is to make people feel comfortable where they are. And so we, we do have global guests um, at all of our properties. We are mainly located in the United States, but we do have a, a, a large um, percentage of our ownership uh, from Japan. And so some of those same same lessons when you first go into a market, um, it's really important to to tread lightly and really get to learn and know and um have real expertise in country to to manage through that and 
um, I think as we're seeing across the globe, this sort of polarizing, I don't know if you, if you can call it opinions, but on these broad issues, it's just going to become more and more challenging to navigate the pull from one side to the other across, um, you know, the, the, the spectrum of, of consumer expectation. It definitely is. And that's where PR, PR professionals become uh, even more important. So, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, you've, got to, you've got to get this right. Otherwise, you can have the real problems, which we're seeing at the moment with H&M and other brands potentially. Frank, another uh, story, um, very different one, but uh, an, a similarly interesting issue with Jason Miller and Taneo. What's, uh, what's the skinny on that one? Yeah, and this is um, this is from the Guardian today. Um, this is entirely their reporting, um, and what the, it shows is that he uh, had supposedly parted ways with uh, Taneo, uh, but they're reporting that that was for the listeners is uh, former right. He uh, was the a former top spokesman for the Trump campaign in 2016. Um, worked with the former president during this transition period, I think he was quoted quite often, you know, while Trump was contesting the election and still to this day is, is an advisor to uh, Trump and, you know, quoted all the time about, you know, his intentions and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so we're getting into the detail of, of the contract. He, uh, it, it basically says, the report from the Guardian basically says it wasn't what it seemed and that he didn't actually, Miller didn't actually separate uh, from Taneo and that he was being paid uh, close to $500,000 a year, uh, essentially as a consultant at the same salary he had been making before. Um, so it, it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting ethics case, obviously. And, and you know, there's no shortage of opinions out there about uh, about Miller. Uh, so it, it, here's what he said uh, when the newspaper asked them about it. Uh, he said when his employer-employee relationship with Tanao was severed, he faced the loss of income due to lost bonuses and benefits. And that financial setback greatly reduced uh, his income and talks about essentially he had parental responsibilities, um, more than $100,000 in total temporary child support, et cetera, et cetera. Tanao has not commented on it so uh, a story we're following a story we'll be following up on um but yeah an interesting case here yeah of course those parental responsibilities were one of the reasons he became a former trump camp uh, advisor when when president trump first came into power but that's the story from the past um yeah so Krispy cream they are doing a covid vaccine campaign that's an interesting combination tell us all about it frank yeah, let's call it a divisive campaign. Um, so Krispy Kreme is essentially saying if you can show uh, your vaccination card, if you can show proof that you got vaccinated for the COVID-19 uh, virus, uh, they will give you a free donut. And you can kind of game the system if you want. You can keep going back or you can keep going to different uh, to different Krispy Kremes and getting free donuts uh, every day for a year if you wanted to. And a lot of people are questioning so you won't Whether die this of is... uh, COVID, but you might die of a heart attack. Or, or just a sugar overdose, sugar, yeah. uh, sugar excess overload. energy. Uh, but, yeah, a lot of people are questioning how good of an idea this is about whether it's, um, you know, encouraging people to get vaccinated from one thing, but not exactly encouraging healthy behavior uh, on the other hand. Um, it's a very cynical point of view, and I think, you know, I, I would never uh, do that. 
No, so, it's not your um, but I think it's, you know, look, I think it's good to encourage people to get vaccinated. Uh, hopefully people do not abuse it and hopefully, you know, no locations encourage abuse. But I, I think getting people, getting shots in people's arms is the most important thing right now. And if anybody can encourage that, then I think I'm for it. Yeah. Yeah. Hannah, how, how's Hilton going to handle that? Are you going to make it uh, compulsory for guests to have, you know, show a vaccine certificate or something like that? It must have come up in conversations. What's what's the strategy? Um, we are not requiring mandatory vaccinations, vaccinations for our team members and we'll continue to follow kind of the, the rules of the road in the various jurisdictions in which we do business. But how we've approached this from the very beginning. Uh, we've followed, you know, it's taken a lot of work to to track and follow all the different states and jurisdictions, but that will continue to be the, the policy and, and to follow our health and safety guidelines. Right, and in terms of guests, that's the, that's the same, is it? You wouldn't require guests to, you know, be a, have had a vaccine before they can come and stay? Um, that would depend on the, the local jurisdiction. So since vaccines aren't widespread enough, we haven't, you know, we haven't faced that hurdle, but certainly, for example, like in Hawaii, where you're required to have a negative test before you go, uh, we, you know, follow and, and work with the state of Hawaii to follow the, the rules of the road. So as those continue to, to roll out, we would continue to follow those those local guidelines. Got it. Um, Frank, let's finish one. Stop Asian hate. Obviously, horrific murders in Atlanta the other week and uh, we've been covering on, on PR Week and Campaign and our sister titles um, about corporate and brand responses to that. You, uh, you know, people expect brands now to weigh in on issues like this. What, what, are, what are the findings of that? How do people think that brands have been responding? The findings of that, and, and I would point to the poll that uh, our sister magazine campaign ran on it recently, is just that um, consumers do want brands to support the stop Asian American and Pacific Islander hate movement, but they want them to do that only if they're taking action by a slight majority. And and frankly, there aren't that many companies out there really supporting this anti-discrimination and anti-hatred movement. Um, some of them that are, GoFundMe has put out a really uh, strong statement and has encouraged people to donate or to give their time to certain organizations. And I, I think that's great. And Instagram has as well. And some other companies like Hasbro and Degree uh, and Indeed have, have been pretty active. But by and large, I don't feel like you're seeing the same sort of mass support that you might have seen last summer. Um you know, whether it was for specifically for uh, for Black Lives Matter or for some sort of criminal justice reform. And I, I, I think a lot of companies still are lagging on this. Um, and, and there just hasn't been enough action in my uh, in, from my perspective. Yeah, I think uh, I think you make a fair point, Frank. Um, I really do. Um, Hannah, just to finish, I mean, brands are being asked to make statements on purposeful issues, on, on uh, social issues these days. And, uh, you know, consumers have said they want that. You know, Edel Edelman's trust barometer, for example, is one of the, the things that, uh, you know, underpins that. So how do you approach that at Hilton? Yeah, and we, we've really taken it kind of to the team member level. I would say we have very active team member resource groups, including Asian, Asian and Pacific Islander um, and we really rely on those as our experts. And that has guided the way that we've handled it as a company. 
Um, but we also have, you know, policies around inclusivity and diversity, and we take those very, very seriously um, and message on that frequently. And, and our team members hear from our leaders on that. And so it continues to be really important. And that culture of inclusivity, I think, is one of the reasons why our, you know, I've certainly been here for over 10 years and why we have a, a many long term owners and, and team members as well continue and will continue to be part of the dialogue ongoing. Yeah, that uh, seems a good strategy to have. Uh, your employees are the most powerful stakeholders in many ways, aren't they? So having them as an intrinsic part of it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Hannah, it's been great chatting to you. Thanks for joining the show. And uh, we're all looking forward to going on holiday. So uh, we, we hope we'd be able to uh, regroup in 12 months and, and paint a much better sto- story of the travel and tourism industry because I think it's, it's just proved how much we miss it uh, these last 12 months. Well, thanks for having me, Stephen Frank, and, and please come see us at Hilton Grand Vacations anytime. Yeah, we may well take you up on that offer for sure. And um, <laughs> Frank, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Um, we'll be on Clubhouse again on Monday night. Uh, Frank Washgoot made his Clubhouse debut this Monday, and uh, what a great event it was, and much the better for Frank's presence. Did you enjoy it, Frank? Yeah, it was a good time. It was a good time. You know, it's a picking up a new app can be a little intimidating, but Clubhouse is very easy to use and to understand as long as you remember to mute yourself. Yes, that's a good point. And uh, you don't have to get dressed up because it's just audio. So uh, that's that's another advantage, isn't it? Um, In fact, it was a great campaign this week. I've got to mention this, the pedigree campaign where uh they had a lot of rescued dogs on clubhouse on a room and they had their pictures there and you could click on the picture and see the details of the dogs and um and you know and and they were trying to find owners for them which i just thought was a fantastic use of clubhouse so there's some good stuff starting to happen on on there as well as some fairly you know just silly stuff to be honest but uh, it's an interesting platform for sure um don't forget our agency business report if you if your agency hasn't got this data in now you really are running out of time because that's uh, is way down the production line so that'll be going live in uh, april and uh, don't forget our pr week connect global events which will be on the 13th of april some great speakers including wpp ceo mark reed so we'll uh, frank and the whole of the team will be uh, doing a session each so so it uh, should be a brilliant event. Check it out uh, on, the, on, the, on the website. But that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit PRWeek.com.